we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. Understanding that weird book of Revelation. Uh, this is part 19. Last week we started on the final outpouring of the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this week we'll finish that section. I have a long text that I'm going to read. I read it last week. I'm going to read it again. Um, Longer than I would typically read in a teaching time. But I I want you to get to feel the, uh, the drama and the weight of what John sees. He's on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. He's probably not totally alone. There'd be some kind of garrison there. But he's, uh, he's been separated and isolated because of his testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he's on this little island that's not even on most maps to this day, not on a lot of them, he gets this series of visions, apocalyptic visions of the end time, the second coming. Visions so incredibly hard to put into words. And you'll see that as I read this lengthy text. But just kind of follow along. If you remember, there are seven seals that get opened up. And they run right to the second coming. The seals encase the whole history of redemption. From the coming of Christ into this world until the end of this creation. The second coming and the new creation. Seven seals. In the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets. The seven trumpets run right up to the end of the age. Each one brings its own series of visions and revelation as John hears these angels and the seven trumpets. We looked at that. In the seventh trumpet, there are the seven bowls of God's wrath poured out suddenly, cataclysmically, at the very end of the age. That's where we are now. And that's why you see the second coming actually happens several times in the book of Revelation. Because the seven seals end with it. The seven trumpets end with it. And the seven bowls end with it. And the second coming is described in very similar terms at least three times in the book of Revelation. And I've shown you that. So now we're finishing up on the seven bowls. The wrath of God poured out at the very end of the age. I'm going to start at 15. Follow along as I read this long text. John is the speaker. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. This is not Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, Satan. This is the wrath of God. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. It looks like that. He's not saying that's what it is. He's saying this is the best description I can give you. Sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, I talked about that, saying, great and amazing are your deeds. These plagues that are going to be poured out 
you will see look almost identical to the book of Exodus and the plagues God poured out on Egypt. It's no wonder that these saints are singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. We're meant to see a fulfillment, a similarity, a comparison in those two times. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So he sees them saying this. Verse 5. After this, John, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And your mind flashes back to that tent, that tabernacle in the wilderness. Tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Hence the seven bowls. Full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So once this starts... The time of repentance is over. That's what this is a picture of. So once this starts, it's going to finish. It's not going to be four pulled out, and then God changes his mind, or five. This is now going to run its course to the end of the age. 16.1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bulls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast, worshipped its image. We talked about that. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Remember, these are visions that he sees. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is, who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, the people on whom these judgments have fallen, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, the true and just are your judgments. The altar. Isn't that strange? This vision. And How do I put this into words? There's an altar, but this altar is talking. He hears this altar speaking. And you remember the saints under the altar, way back in the early parts of Revelation. The souls of those who have been martyred, and they cry out, How long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood? Now the altar speaks. Verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire and they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. No change of heart at this point. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and 
cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. He says it again. They did not repent of their deeds. This is a tough read, isn't it? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. Remember the dragon, Revelation 12, that's identified as Satan. The mouth of the beast out of the mouth of the false prophet. Three unclean spirits like frogs. It's a vision, okay? It's a picture. These aren't actual frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We'll talk about that tonight. And they assembled them at the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying it is done. In terms of the battle of Armageddon in this portion you don't really see it fought do you? You just see this gathering and then the angel says it's done. 18 and there were flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts. Thinking about that image of Babylon that I talked about. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. His vision still. This is what he's seeing. Great hailstones about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What a text. In our last study, we looked at three important truths from this passage. I'm just going to really fast just recap them. First, we saw that the outpouring of God's wrath is viewed as both uh, a victory and a deliverance for the righteous. If you look at 15.2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast with its image and the number of his name, standing by the sea of glass with harps of God. And they're singing this song of, of worship. So, so this... Wrath is poured out, and, and it's not poured out on the people of God and those who follow the Lamb, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. There will be much during the tribulation that will be difficult. The church will be persecuted. But there's something here where they are spared the wrath of God, and you think back to that sealing of the people of God. Remember the 144,000, and they're marked, those that don't worship the beast and the false prophet. So here you see them here you see them protected and victorious. We talked about that. The second thing we saw was this uh, outpouring of the final wrath of God. It's it's preceded by a time of of preparation. And you see that 15:5 where there's this tent of witness. And you get a picture of of like the tabernacle in the wilderness. Only John sees this this angel coming out of the 
tent of witness and he announces that the wrath of God is going to be poured out and then, and then John hears this uh, supernatural being say and no one can enter and stop anything until the seven bowls are poured out. So, so it reaches a point where it tips. There's no repentance. There's no hunger for God. There's no acknowledging of God. And so these seven bowls will all be poured out. And that process, it's been a while coming to it. it. Must be a dozen times in the book of Revelation you see the people. They didn't repent. They didn't repent. They didn't honor God. They didn't repent. They cursed God. They cursed God. Now it gets to the point where it's started. And there will be no turning back. The preparation is over. There'll be no stopping at this point. So we looked at that. And the third thing we saw, when we looked at the beginning of the outpouring of the first of the six bulls, was the similarity through the plagues in, in Egypt. And, and, and just as you go back and look at the Exodus, and there are the plagues that God pours out on the captors, on, on the Egyptians, to get Pharaoh to let God's people go. And time after time after time, and they're very similar to these plagues. And they're, we're, they're meant to look similar. And, and, and time after time, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, and then he changes his mind. And then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, go, and then he changes his mind. And then it comes to the end where it talks about Pharaoh changed his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's this shift. So those are the first three things we looked at with this pouring out of the wrath of God. I have two that I want to look at tonight. So one, two, three was last week. So this is point number four, the first point tonight. The emphasis is on staying awake when the rest of the world sleeps toward destruction. I get that in chapter 16, verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. John says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So, I can't review everything tonight, but, but so you have, you have Satan... And you have the spirit of Antichrist and Antichrist with the political dimension. Satan with the spiritual aspect. You have the, a political aspect to the kingdoms. Antichrist involved. The spirit of Antichrist involved. And then the false prophet and the religious component of the persecution that will come to the church. So these three elements. And John says, he, he lists them. The false prophet the beast, the dragon, and he sees these unclean spirits coming out of them, demonic spirits, performing signs. Why signs? Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, that, that uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, that there's going to be deception, where the, the people of God are going to see supernatural things, and they're going to think, well, this is God. We're very close to that, by the way. And so they go about uh, to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God. And then 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stays awake. See if the person beside you is dozing off. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. 
that he may not go about and be seen exposed, go about naked and be seen exposed. I think these verses are important for the way they link together the involvement of the kings and leaders of the world with these demonic spirits from Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet. So in other words, though there will come this final battle somehow between the kings of the earth who war against the cause of Christ, there's, it's not an ordinary war. And my belief, I can't prove this, and so this is just my opinion. So don't go away here mad at me. I, I just hinted at it when I read the passage. I don't believe there's going to be this global war that will actually be fought. I think what the text hints at is preparation for that kind of event, and Jesus comes first. That's what I think it will be. I don't care either way. Uh, I'm going to follow Jesus. But I'm just saying, I think we've made much. Hal Lindsey and those guys made a big deal of, and they'd figure out, who the king from the north is and how Russia is going to be involved and how this country is going to be involved. And they had them all lined up. And then this ten-horn thing that was going to be like a, a, a revamping of the European common empire. And they had it all figured out. And I just think it's a waste of time because I don't think the Bible goes there. You can sell a lot of books, but I don't think the text goes there. So, so what we're reminded of here is this is primarily a spiritual thing. Is the exact nature of this coalition against Christ, well, it's, it's not precisely clear. Opinions vary. Some details are given in 17, 12, 13, 14. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. Really, an hour? Together with the beast, these are of one mind. Hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb. So how are they... See, the reason I think this is... Don't be too dogmatic here because... Who who are these people fighting? All these kingdoms, all these nations, they're fighting the lamb. What, the lamb? What lamb? So, so are they, are, is Jesus going to come and duke it out with all these empires? Like, I don't, I don't see that as being the way it's going to unfold. I see things getting increasingly antagonistic toward Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the values of the kingdom of Christ, and, and increased tension, increased verbosity, more and more stuff in the news as people align against Christ. And then Jesus comes back. So I'm just saying, if you want to picture like 5,000 tanks lined up, go ahead. I'm not saying it can't be. I'm just saying I don't think the text demands that kind of interpretation. Everybody get what I'm saying? Okay. They will make war on the lamb. The lamb will conquer them. What kind of, like what kind of victory would that be? The lamb conquering these kingdoms. Does, does, I'm not being sacrilegious. I'm just saying these are the issues that I have trouble with. Is the lamb, does he have a fleet of jets dropping bombs? The lamb? How is he going to conquer them? Well, it'll be with his coming. And then right in the middle of all of this, and this is the point, verse 15, Behold, 
I'm coming like a thief, and it's in quotation marks. This is the lamb. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So he's saying that these times are going to call for special alertness. The reason I don't think it can be just portrayed in terms of military conflict is people don't get asleep in situations like that. Those aren't the kind of things you get drowsy about and ignore and miss what's going on. A global war. This seems to be something that people are saying peace and security... 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will, they will not escape. So to be asleep is to miss the significance of events that are unfolding. To be asleep is to assume peace and safety ongoingly for the circumstances of your life, your community, your family, And not see that things are going to start pressing in. To be asleep is to be absorbed in worldly affairs. To the extent that you get blinded to eternal issues. It's it's, to be asleep is to be numbed by pleasure. To the point where you don't see the end of that pleasure coming. Jesus talked about this. Matthew 24. I think this is in your... Notes. Is that in your notes? Matthew 24, 37 to 39? Okay, read it out loud with me. As, there, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, to be asleep... They heard Noah because Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah probably for a hundred years told people why he was building the ark and what they had to get ready for and they didn't take him seriously. That's what it means to be asleep. And then there's this strange call not to be found naked and exposed. What is that all about? Is he he really concerned that people are going to be running around with no clothes on? And I don't think that's it. I think it's something like, if you think way, way back, 19 weeks ago, when we were looking at Christ's letter to these seven churches, in 3.18 he writes to the church at Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may... Clothe yourself, and the sh- here it is again. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That's another way of addressing this subject of like being asleep. So it's striking to me that these words are addressed to the church. And they are in, in Revelation 16 as well. It's one thing to, to profess Christ. One thing for me to profess Christ. To talk about Christ. It's quite another thing to be entirely clothed. Clothed with Christ. 
That image is frequently picked up on in the New Testament. John does not originate it when he sees it in this vision. It's, it's summing up what has always been taught throughout the whole church age. It, it has to do with the application of what we know of Christ. The application of Christ's righteousness and faithfulness. Here's the way it's talked about. This not being found naked. Being clothed. Not found naked. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Isn't that interesting? Put on Christ. Like, like, like taking it out of the closet. You can admire it, have it on a hanger. And putting it on and wearing it. Romans 13.14 But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You you, you clothe yourself in Christ. And what that means is the desires of your mind, the appetites of the flesh, they don't dominate anymore. There's, there's There's another garment. There's another appearance. Look at Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Paul says, it's the middle of a sentence, how he had been teaching them to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here's the Christian life, 24. And to, and to put on clothes, put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So... What John sees in this vision, and and then he hears from this angel. He hears from the Lord. As as this ongoing separation occurs between the followers of Christ and the rejecters of Christ, as this division increases, it, it, it will not be enough for these followers of Christ to be followers in name only. It's going to have to be something because because there will be so much pressure to conform that unless your Christian life is the real you, you're not going to stick with it. Number five, we're almost done. This is the last point. The text talks about this destruction of Babylon and the powers of this present age. It's 16, and you pick it up around verse 17. Chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel, this is the last one, poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, it's done. And, and, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. This is his vision, okay? This is, he's still seeing a vision. He's describing as best he can what he's seeing. Rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was this earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. And then, and then plural, the cities of the nations. So he's not just talking about one isolated city. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the Great. Remember that harlot we looked at who seduces, draws people into false pleasures. Makes them, as we said earlier, makes them asleep. 
to the second coming. Living for their own desires. That's Babylon. That's the picture of Babylon. God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. God says every drop. Every island fled away. No more mountains were found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Just a couple things real fast. So the events of the seventh bowl are strikingly similar as we would expect to the events accompanying the seventh trumpet. Because I said, remember, they all lead right up to the end. Here's the seventh trumpet. It's in Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, heavy hail. See, it's exactly the same thing. So this substantiates the idea that each of these seven things that he sees, John sees seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Each one of them carries on right to the very end. Details vary a bit, but the events are the same. And secondly, it becomes increasingly clear that Babylon is more than just any one city or region. It's not to be taken literally as a place in the Middle East. The, the cities of the nations, Revelation 16, 19. It, it fits with the way John sees the kings of the earth forming a coalition of Babylon in Revelation 17. Now, we'll get the details of the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18. But what you notice here is even at this late stage, boy, the people refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. Um, such is the work of Satan. Sometimes you'll see it now, but it will be common then. Where God, God speaks, God is gracious, sometimes very firm in his hand, all designed to lead people toward repentance, but won't force repentance if people want to reject, if people don't want to accept, if they don't want to hear and so, and so what you see is, is you see these, the path goes like this, and then as it gets later and later toward the end, it, it goes like this, and you have the godly and the ungodly, followers of Christ, not just rejectors, but then persecutors of Christ. There's an animosity that grows. Now, do you see that happening in our culture? Just toward Christianity. But this is mild. This is mild. What, what John says is, church... Don't be sleeping through this. Don't be sleeping through this. And and be clothed with Christ. Make sure, make sure that your walk with Christ is the real deal. Make sure it's the real deal. Everyone said?